Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, should an artist's lyrics be used as evidence in court? I never killed anybody, but I got something to do with that body. I got this grease on my back, carry it like I'm moving the body. Well, some members of Congress, including Georgia Representative Hank Johnson, say no. And his reason, well, a lot of it has to do with the First Amendment. So we'll talk all about that. Plus, the Satcher Institute over at the Morehouse School of Medicine is revealing what a health official cite is a groundbreaking study on the cost of mental health inequities. Now, the study found that the lack of equitable mental health care costs nearly 117,000 lives and about $278 billion between 2016 and 2020. And later. I've been loving you. Get ready to start singing your favorite Otis Redding song. Celebrating the legacy of Otis Redding as today is the birthday of the legendary singer who died in 1967. All that's coming up. But first this, we begin with this. Cobb County Sheriff Craig Owens says two of his deputies killed in the line of duty last night were ambushed. In a news conference held earlier today, Sheriff Owens said the deputies were trying to serve a warrant near Marietta. That was for a failure to appear on a theft by deception charge. My understanding is that deputies have made uh, a temp at the home, knocked on the door, ringing the doorbell. No one came to the house. As they were going back to the car, a vehicle drove up, which they assumed was a suspect who lived there. And as they got back out of the car, as he got in his car, shots were fired. Afterwards, one of the suspects barricaded himself inside the home on Hampton Glen Court. After an hours-long standoff, actually two suspects were taken into custody. Sheriff Owen says both are being held at the Cobb County Police Department for questioning. It has been more than 30 years since a Cobb County sheriff had been killed in the line of duty. Former President and Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter and his wife Rosalind are extending condolences to the family of Queen Elizabeth II as well as the British public. In a statement, Carter said her sense of duty and dignity were an inspiration. Governor Brian Kemp credited her with steady leadership through good times and bad. And Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens said the city's airport will be lit in the Queen's honor. Now there will be more coverage regarding the death of Queen Elizabeth II as well as ceremonies and other observances here. You can hear that live on WABE via NPR and the BBC throughout the day. In other news, speaking of Governor Brian Kemp, he's planning to submit a request to the Federal Emergency Management Agency for assistance after all the flooding in northwest Georgia. We hear more from Molly Samuel. Last Sunday, heavy rains flooded roads and buildings in Chattooga County. The flood also damaged the water treatment plant in the town of Somerville, which is the county seat. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is already helping state and local officials take stock of the damage to homes and businesses there. 
And the governor's office says the state plans to ask FEMA for a disaster declaration from President Biden. That would bring more federal assistance to the area for recovery. The Salvation Army and local churches are continuing to offer food and water to people affected by the floods, and schools are still closed. Molly Samuel, WABE News. Georgia's 988 crisis line took in almost 38,000 calls, texts, and chat messages in its first 45 days. The crisis line refers callers experiencing a mental health or addiction crisis to counseling or other inpatient or outpatient services they may need. A Department of Behavioral Health and Development Disabilities had an analysis of initial the initial 988 data, and it found a high number of calls coming from rural counties. Don Peel is the crisis coordination director. This data is preliminary. We're going to continue to look at it. But for the first 30 days, there were more cases in south rural Georgia than other parts of the state. And during the same period, 988 also saw more calls from black Georgians than whites. And just under 10 percent of crisis episodes involved young people under the age of 18. Well, if you're all about electric vehicles, we've got some buying to do. Sales of electric vehicles in the southeastern U.S. states have doubled in the past year, but those sales still account for only about 5% of overall vehicle purchases, leaving the region well behind the national average. Now, Georgia ranks second in the southeast in EV sales, something Stan Cross with the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy attributes to a state tax credit drivers enjoyed until 2015. The sheer number of consumers that got in the game early and kind of what that led to in terms of charging station deployment and just broad awareness of electrification in Georgia, I think is really is, is really telling. In the past year, two EV manufacturers have announced plans for multi-billion dollar factories here in Georgia. The YWCA of Greater Atlanta is announcing its next executive leader. Danita Knight has been appointed the new CEO. This after Charmaine Gowens announced her retirement early this year. Knight currently serves as vice president for communications and marketing over at Agnes Scott College. Gowens, who's been with the, the YWCA CEO the last seven years, has overall worked in many roles serving the Atlanta community for the last four decades. And some history for you. The YWCA of Greater Atlanta was actually founded at Spelman College in 1902. And finally, Atlanta Falcons defensive lineman Grady Jarrett says, let the season begin. It's an exciting time. We're excited to get back on the field, compete, you know, live action. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to see what the team got. Rival opponent, division game, start the season. I mean, you can't ask for a better start to the game, you know. Well, we know the team welcomes, I'm not sure about welcoming, but the Falcons open the season against their biggest rival, the New Orleans Saints, this Sunday at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Now, lots of new faces on the team, including quarterback Marcus Mariota. Now, according to the experts over at CBS Sports, their sports writers, this is them, not me, so send them your emails. The Falcons are among 14 teams that received exactly zero votes to make the playoffs. Hmm. We shall see one game at a time. You're listening to Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. So, what's in a song other than the music and the lyrics? How about evidence that maybe an actual crime was committed? In other words... I never killed anybody, but I got something to do with that body. I got this grease on my back, carry it like I'm moving the body. I told him to shoot a hundred rounds, like he trying to move it about it. It was like lamb in the morning, skip to school, that's true. That is Atlanta-based artist Young Thug, real name Jeffrey Williams, and it's from his 2018 song, Anybody. Now, along with others, Young Thug and another artist, Gunner, are accused of being affiliated with the group YSL, but operates, authorities say operates more like a street gang, including racketeering and other gang-related charges. But here is the question. Should an artist's lyrics be used as evidence in court? And some members of Congress, including longtime Georgia Democratic Representative Hank Johnson, say no. His reasoning? That's a First Amendment issue. And in fact, along with fellow Congressman member Jamal Bowman, introduced the Restoring Artistic Protection, or RAP Act, to stop the use of lyrics and artistic expression as evidence in a criminal case. Congressman Hank Johnson joins me now. Welcome. It's been a minute. Yeah, it has, and great to be with you again, Rose. Yeah, let's begin here, because Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has been adamant that using lyrics as it relates to the ongoing criminal case involving Young Thug and, may, and maybe even others, that the use of rap lyrics as evidence is applicable. I, I would Take a listen to this, Congressman. I believe in the First Amendment. It's one of our most precious rights. However, the First Amendment does not protect people from prosecutors using it as evidence if it is such. In this case, we put it as overt and predicate acts within the RICO count because we believe that's exactly what it is. Your thoughts, Congressman Johnson? Well, freedom of expression is derived from freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. And freedom of expression comes into play uh, in terms of artistic creativity. You know, in our country, we have culture. Any culture uh, will produce art. And rap music is art. Mm -hmm. It's actually poetry to music. And so when you have art, um, you know, you have extensions of reality. You have, uh, you have fiction. Uh, you have untruth being told, but in a way that's entertaining. And so uh, what is to say that the lyrics of a rapper uh, should be used as evidence against them in a criminal case. Well, you know, there should be some guardrails up to protect artistic freedom, to protect that right, that First Amendment right of freedom of expression. And that's what the Restoring Artistic Protection Act does, although it only applies to federal cases, not mm -hmm. state cases. Let me ask you this. Do you think, through your lens, that this is also an unfair target on a particular genre of music, rap. I mean, we've heard some stuff in country, you know, punk, metal, pop. I mean, that they're lyrics, you know. So, but do you think this is just perhaps maybe targeted more toward rap music? Well, you know, rap music 
rap artists have been targeted at least 500 times that we know of over the last uh, 20 or so years. Rap music has been used to convict them. Uh, 500 cases that we know of. So we know that rap music, rap lyrics are being used by prosecutors mm -hmm. in criminal trials. And if there are no guardrails up, what happens is that people end up being uh, prejudiced uh, against rappers because of what they rap about. Mm -hmm. They rap about urban street life in black communities across the country. And, um, and there are a lot of uh, fact finders who are uh, intimidated by that. Uh, we start out as black people with uh, being stereotyped being the victims of a false narrative. Uh, and then when we start thinking that all rappers are criminals, mm -hmm. you know, which is what uh, introduction of rap lyrics does to the person it's introduced against, uh, it creates an unfair advantage to the prosecutors to prejudice the fact finder against the accused. And it creates a awful burden on the accused to have to show that they are not what the lyrics would indicate that they are. In other words... And that's not the way that the law should work in America. Every person should be presumed innocent. In other uh, words, you say focus on whatever evidence, tangible right. evidence that the prosecution has and not just on rap lyrics. The lyrics of if the one that's charged is it happens to be an artist, a rap artist. You don't want to focus on the lyrics. Focus on other evidence that's, is what you're saying. That's right. Focus on the evidence. Unless you can prove to the judge that the rap or the artistry or the creative, the creative content that you are uh, trying to bring in as evidence, unless you can show to the court that... Um, that that expression was intended to have a literal meaning mm -hmm. and that it refers to specific facts of the crime alleged in the case. And also that that creative expression is actually relevant mm -hmm. to any disputed facts that may be involved in the case. And so this legislation sets up some guardrails to prevent prosecutors from just dropping in highly prejudicial uh, creative content, which stifles First Amendment uh, freedom of expression, simply to pre prejudice the jury against the accused. Well, what are those other guardrails? I mean, you mentioned unless they can prove that this lyric is directly tied to the alleged crime. What yeah, other guardrails are it, you? Go ahead. And that the artist intended uh, for that expression, for that creative expression to be taken as true or to have a literal meaning. You and I know, Rose, that rappers and all creative uh, artists, uh, whether or not they're drawing, uh, painting, whether or not they're producing a movie or TV show, they take reality and they extend upon it, embellish on it, sometimes put themselves into it when they are not actually in it. And it's all for the value of entertainment, 
Well, and we so call it. We we ca- well. Also, there's some rappers who just, as the kids say, they just fronting because they ain't been nowhere near the hood. Yeah, but this is exactly what right. this is what the labels want, and this is what. Now, that's for some. That's not all, because we cannot ignore also, Congressman, that there have been a lot of rap artists who have lost their lives to violence associated with street gang activity. We cannot just dismiss that. But you're talking about just for the purpose of this conversation. Let's focus on whether or not the rap lyrics can be used as evidence in a criminal case against someone who happens to also be an artist. That is what you're solely focusing on, right? That's exactly right. Let me answer this. Has, it has nothing in, uh, specifically to do with uh, the case against Young Thug and Gunna. This uh, Restoring Artistic Protection Act has been on my drawing board since 2019. Mm-hmm. Have you so spoken to with District Attorney Fonnie Willis, I know you can't talk about this case, but have you just had any conversations with her or any other, any other DA or someone from law enforcement about this? I'm just curious what their reaction was. If you did, no, I, I have not uh, had the opportunity to discuss the uh, rap act with uh, any prosecutor, but I'd welcome the opportunity to do so Back- because they need to be educated about what they are actually doing. It's a strategy that's being used to perpetuate racial uh, stereotypes. And uh, and it's, it's, it's not right. Uh, and it's, uh, it, 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 it's, I mean, we wouldn't do this to Johnny Cash. If, you know, when Johnny Cash said, I shot a man in Reno just to, to watch, watch him, him die. die. Yes. We don't, we don't uh, focus on country music artists because of what Johnny Cash said or Freddie Mercury uh, of Queen when he said, uh, put a gun up to his head, pulled the trigger, now he's dead. Sure. You don't focus on uh, rock music, but you do focus on rap music, uh, which, by the way, is the highest grossing uh, genre of music across the world. People love rap music. Well, yeah, people love they the... Love it. <laughs> yeah, love people... it, not just... not. Not just because of the beat, but because of the lyrics. Well, and, and some people like that, the yeah, and some and let's be clear too, Congressman. Some people love the all the optics around what is supposedly this this lifestyle, and and you and I both know that it, that for some folks, you know, they can't escape that. They want the the glamour, but they don't want the pain and the suffering. So that's a whole nother set. But listen, I want to go back to this because in 2014. Well, that, that's an important point you made. Well, it though, is just because, because you're wearing a gold chain and you got on some white sneakers and a. Yeah, uh, you're not about that life, so don't act mean like that you you're are. A rapper making money. Right, that's and, right, right. And don't rap about a lifestyle that really you're not because. You well, know, I mean, you're entitled to rap about. Well, you can, you but you're not gonna get any credit. But you're not gonna get the credibility. I don't know. What, you know what? That's a whole. Well, a lot you of, and my nephew need of, to have this conversation. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of. Young people in urban areas are getting rich off of their music, and they should not be punished, punished, and or penalized for the genre of music that they choose to uh, to create within. Let, let me get this in here because back in 2014, and you said this has been your, been on your mind for a while. The New Jersey State Supreme yes. Court actually unanimously ruled that you cannot consider what they can call violent rap lyrics. You can't use it as evidence unless it has a quote strong nexus to the underlying crime being charged. Let me ask you this. If there's no federal legislation to ban that type of evidence, and it appears that maybe we should leave this up to the state, hold on, to the state legislatures, 
But surely, depending on whom you ask or the outcome, this may have to be ultimately decided by the, the Supreme Court. Or, or what do you well, think? Go yeah. ahead. Well, well, the Rap Act does not bar the use of rap lyrics against uh, someone on trial, but it does put some guardrails in place to guide the fact finder in deciding whether or not uh, the rap lyrics are admissible or mm -hmm. any other creative content against an artist is admissible in court. You just can't come in and drop it in. Mm -hmm. You have to show some nexus to the facts at issue in, in the case. How, as we wrap up, how optimistic are you that the rap act will actually get somewhere? And, and and also, it is a matter of federal prosecutions that the RAP Act applies to. States would have to uh, come forward with laws that would create guardrails in state prosecutions. Mm -hmm. The state of California has already done so. Mm -hmm. Efforts are underway in New York and perhaps other states to, to do that as well. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of educating to do. Uh, in order for this uh, legislation to pass. Uh, we just dropped it about a month ago, and uh, we will continue to uh, build momentum for eventual passage of it. I would not have introduced it if I didn't think it had a chance to to pass. Well, you said you have to educate people. My final question is, and then who are you, edu who are you targeting then? Who needs to hear this message that you and some of your, your other fellow congressmen, y'all want this to be used as, quote, the guardrails? Well, you need 218 votes in the House of Representatives yeah. in order to, to get anything uh, passed. That's that's one half plus one of uh, the number of people in in the House of Representatives. Then you got to get it passed in the Senate. Yeah. And uh, then it goes to the president. So it's it's a tall order to pass uh, uh, any piece of legislation, mm -hmm. particularly at a time of congressional gridlock in both chambers. Yeah. But we just have to continue to work through it. We have to educate the people and we have to educate our colleagues on the need for this legislation. Georgia longtime Democratic Congressman Hank Johnson, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. From WABE in Atlanta, you're listening to Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Now, often to drive home the importance of not just health care for all, but access to quality health care, advocates and proponents will highlight the financial impact. And that's what we're going to talk about next. The Satcher Institute, housed inside Atlanta's Morehouse School of Medicine, has issued what they're calling a groundbreaking study on the cost of mental health inequities. Now, this study found that the lack of equitable mental health care cost nearly 117,000 lives between 2016 and 2020. And get this, also, it estimated, this cost about $278 billion. It's called the Economic Burden of Mental Health Inequities in the United States Report. And I'm now joined by Daniel Dawes, professor and executive director of the Satcher Insti Leadership Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine, and also the author of The Political Determinants of Health. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me on today, Rose. 
You know, you were quoted with the following here, investing in mental health care saves lives and dollars. We have known this for decades, but until now did not fully understand the monumental impacts of neglecting to act, close quote. So as these numbers were coming together for this four-year time period, you, you were shocked at these final numbers or were you maybe not shocked? You know, we were shocked because you never quite know with the available data what it's going to show, right? Mm -hmm. And so for us, we knew that it was going to be alarming. I think we were going to be concerned by what we saw, but we didn't quite grasp, you know, the extent in terms of dollars and lives saved. Hmm. For our listeners who may not be familiar, let's just back up because if you're looking at this four-year time period, why was this why was this time period so important as opposed to any other, or maybe even a longer time period, let's say a decade? You know, this this time period was the period in which we were able to get the latest data mm-hmm. around uh, mental health care in the United States, and it's a really important period too because um, during that period we saw rates of suicide rising in youth overall, but rates reaching this crisis level in, in, um, you know, youths of color, quite frankly. 40% of all youths between the ages of 12 to 17 report having several days of feeling sad or depressed. We know that has been, you know, exacerbated by this um, COVID pandemic, Mm -hmm. right? Where many folks were forced to quarantine or isolate. We saw loneliness increasing. And so, you know, during that time period, what we have found from the literature is that over two and a half million youth in the U.S. have severe depression and multiracial youth were most at risk. And if you break that out to, you know, other population groups along the, the lifespan continuum, for instance, if we looked at adults, you know, Native Americans mm-hmm. um, live with, with the highest levels of mental illness, followed by race, multiracial individuals, LGBTQI individuals, mm-hmm. and African Americans and Latinx individuals. So it is it is quite staggering when you are able to disaggregate this by race and ethnicity and multiple statuses and intersectionalities. You're able to see a very important picture in terms of lives lost and in terms of the economic burden um, in, in, in not really addressing the inequities in our mental health care system. So for our listeners, can you give some specifics in terms of the data set that you all, the information, where it came from that you all use, and particularly when we get to this 117,000 lives lost? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually looked at four um, data sets um, coming from, you know, those that uh, were based on surveys, those that the federal government had called Mm -hmm. uh, primarily from CMS and CDC. And then from there, we had a group of um, analysts, right, our um, economists looking at that very carefully pulling through um, basically manually um, by race and ethnicity and then calculating it based on a research that was done in 2009, the economic burden of health inequalities in America mm-hmm. that was done by Dr. Thomas Leviste that we were then able to use. That was a landmark report in its time, but it did not include behavioral health. It didn't include mental and behavioral health factors. It looked at physical health conditions. Mm-hmm. And in that report, looking at a four-year period, they found that we had spent $300 billion a year on, um, or we had lost $300 billion owing to disparities in racial and ethnic health status. So this report now was really modeled. We took their analysis um, or modeled our analysis on their methodology 
And we found that over our four year period, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. right, again, with even more limited data than we have for physical health conditions, we were able to find this, I would say, an underestimate of the true problem, right, mm. in this country. I am sure it's much more higher, mm. right, than than um, what we have what we have found within these four data sets. And for listeners are saying, well, when you when you say two hundred seventy eight billion dollars, is that are we talking about in terms of how much it costs maybe to address the issue? Some other optics around what does that two hundred seventy eight billion dollars represent? Yeah, that's a really great question. So we're looking at both direct and indirect costs, right? So we're looking at this from a political determinants of health lens, a very broad social determinants of health lens, right? And it is looking at, you know, basically the lives that were prematurely lost, that 117,000, mm-hmm. had they been given the resources, had they been given access to mental health service, to behavioral health services that they needed, right, or treatments, and whatnot. And had they been given that and they were able to live longer, more productive lives, we would have actually seen um, this $278 billion cost savings to the country. What? Instead of, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Director Dawes, what does that say to you? Or what do you hope that people, when they're hearing you make this connection? Well, I, I really hope that it helps our country to understand that this underrated issue of mental health can no longer continue. We can no longer continue to ignore, you know, and treat this as a secondary issue. It is absolutely critical, especially as we've been going through this endemic and as as we are moving to becoming a more racially pluralistic society. Mm -hmm. What we have found in this country, and it's going back 165 years, when Dorothea Dix and other mental health reformers tried desperately to get the federal government to address the general welfare of people with mental illness and substance use disorders in this country and and, and was basically ignored for 40 years of her life until finally she gets this bill for the benefit of the indigent insane passed by a Congress that was accepted, only to have that vetoed by the president at the time, Mm -hmm. which then led to this country ignoring mental health um, care for about 100 years until we went through two major world wars. That is astronomical that we have we have a dearth of investments in this area until a significant pandemic or a major war brings this nation on its knees in terms of our mental health. And, and we, so yeah. it's 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 yeah, and it's unfortunate or, or, or a major school shooting happens. And that's when you see the investments come in for a short period of time. And then they are they are cut off after maybe a couple of years. It's unfortunate. So we need long term sustainable investments in this arena, because if young people, communities of color, these young people are coming from communities that are sicker and dying younger. Right. It presents all sorts of economic and national security issues for the mm-hmm. country. And, and, and Rose, for us, you know, it, it really is part of this, this um, work that you mentioned with the political determinants of health, where we have found that in the United States, the only way we have been able to get federal mental health policies, right, and even health equity focused policies passed, mm-hmm. is when we align them with an economic argument and a national security argument. And oftentimes we don't have that data to really make that argument, but today we were able to do that. And I am hopeful that this report now is going to help us to move that needle of mental health equity in the right degree. 
I want to a get, meaningful degree. We're going to get more into solutions in just a moment, but I want to use Georgia yeah. as an example because, as you know, uh, Georgia was among the states, I think, at the bottom when it came to resources for, for mental health. And then just this year, the new law that, that went into effect, where now we know that private health insurers, they have to cover mental health the same as physical conditions or physical ailments. It's 2022, and now I got a lot of emails saying, why did it take a state like Georgia to even come? Why did it take so long for a state like Georgia to even do this? This is 2022, and now we have this law. Is this an example of just... It's been going on too long. Well, yeah, yeah, that is a great question. And I will say that we have this hierarchy, not only this hierarchy of human value, right, in the United States, but we have this sort of hierarchy of um, chronic diseases. And unfortunately, mental illnesses and substance use disorders don't fall in the top priorities, right, as other chronic diseases. And that's been unfortunate. And, and 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 as I mentioned, in health policy, we are so reactive, right? It takes it takes a significant event, whether it is a you know a pandemic mm-hmm. that comes a hundred once in a hundred years, or it's it's a major war, or um, you know it's it's something else like a natural disaster, or whatever that that then grabs the nation's attention, grabs our policymakers' attention, and then they they will go ahead and prioritize this. But we're very reactionary, and so if one of these events don't necessarily happen. Folks don't take it as seriously as they would other pressing medical health conditions. So what and should I think come that's first? That's really part of it. So what should come first? If you're talking about, listen, we need to have these interventions and support treatments that will advance mental health equity, and then you're talking about addressing the social and political determinants of health equities. Sometimes you got to start with changing somebody's mindset, but then you got to say, no, you should implement it first, and then try to change people's mind. Where do you begin? Oh my gosh! It, it, well, the the answer for me depends on who wants to begin, right? So depending depending on who they are and, and the the type of involvement they wanna have, I think, you know, you take this socio-ecological perspective, right? There are different levels that mm-hmm. we can operate in. So there are those at, at the um, downstream level, um, providers, behavioral health, um, specialists, psychologists, psychiatrists, you name it, who, you know, they can um, work towards increasing, you know, culturally competent behavioral health services mm-hmm. um, to these communities. And then I think at the same time, while they are doing that with their respective power and privilege, those that operate at the grass tops, right, our policymakers, mm-hmm. the political influencers and so forth, they need to be working to think about these structural conditions that, you know, have perpetuated um, unfortunately, these inequities in our community, especially the mental health piece. And and one of the things that we tried in this report to do was to show, right, the, the connection between poverty, unemployment, and mm-hmm. poor mental health that disproportionately affect communities of color, women, as well as sexual and gender minorities, right? Mm-hmm. And and then we, we, we were breaking that up to show, you know, how this then impacts different racial and ethnic groups like low-income Latinos or those who identify as Latinx families have the highest numbers of full families that are in poor mental health, followed by mm-hmm. um, Black or African-American low-income families, right? And so what does that mean if, if we are truly, for those even working at the grassroots level, those providers, well, there's the argument that they need to stick to the biology of disease. I actually believe too, though, that if you're comfortable, yes, you focus on that aspect. But if you can use your power and privilege, work with these policymakers mm-hmm. to develop, you know, the policies that take an equity lens to them that will address 
these structural conditions in which we're all born into, we live in and we die in, that really is impairing our ability to reach mental health equity in these communities. Well, and not to mention the rural communities. Earlier in the show, we talked about the crisis hotline, which saw a a huge percentage number from Georgia's rural counties. So there's a rural population that often is sort of sometimes we're paying more attention to it now, but being left out because for some, it's just access in terms of infrastructure, getting to even just getting access to even calling someone or, or doing telehealth. There's a whole lot of optics around here. So you're saying... Make sure we align ourselves in terms of grassroots, policymakers, everybody come together. We address this. Absolutely. All right. As you we got ra- it. All right. As we wrap up, I'll give you one final question then. And I, I love to ask this question because I'm hoping that one day somebody's going to give me this fabulous, magical answer. <laughs> all right. <You> know, now. <laughs> what does it what does a effective mental health equity policy look like for an entire nation? Can you answer in two minutes? Oh, my. You know what? I'm going to try my best, Rose, because, you know, I'm very verbose. That is my weakness. But, you you know, I think it starts fundamentally with the scarceness of consistent, robust and inclusive data. Right. If we're going to build this infrastructure and build it to to be sustainable. Right. So that it can meaningfully move mental health equity forward. I think starting there is is really key because what we have seen, even within our ability in our electronic health records and so forth, is this inconsistency in how racial and ethnic groups and behavioral health concerns are coded and classified. So I think mm-hmm. greater attention needs to be paid to the to the data piece because we know that the presence of robust data can lead to a more inclusive policy, both in the short term, midterm, and even the longer term. So I would start there. All right. So you, you did it. Daniel Dawes, <laughs> <laughs> professor you, and executive director of the Satcher Health Leadership Institute at the Morehouse School of Medicine and author of The Political Determinants of Health. We'll have a link to the report from our website to yours. Thank you so much for the conversation. Good conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Okay, here we go. Can you name your favorite Otis Redding song? I've been loving you too long to stop now. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting Watching the ships roll in, and then I watch them roll away again. Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay. It makes me feel good to know one thing. I know I'm alive. Ah, so much from short life. Otis Redding. Well, this week and into the weekend in Macon, Georgia, as they always do, the Otis Redding Foundation will celebrate the legacy of the legendary soul singer on what would have been actually his 81st birthday today. Now, events range from a fundraiser to benefit the future Otis Redding Center for the Arts in Macon. And the special guests include Grammy Award winning jazz pianist Robert Glasper, 
Grammy Award-nominated country music singer Mickey Guyton. She's been a guest on this program. And again, that groundbreaking ceremony for the center. This is a massive space for musical education, including learning labs, practice rooms, and a stage for performances by students ages 3 to 18. Redding's daughter, Carla Redding Andrews, says the new building will let the foundation expand its work. It should be a full-fledged space of technology that offers every facet of the music industry and beyond. Uh, because not everyone can be the singer, not everyone can play the instrument, but there are so many other ways that you can be in this business and do well, and that's what we teach. I'm going to try to sneak in there. Now, back in 2016, I spoke with Otis Redding III, Otis Redding's son, and Mark Lockett, Otis Redding's nephew, from the band The Reddings. Is there a song? Is there a song <laughs> from your dad that it just resonates with you? And, and Otis, I'll start with you. I got a text message from Carla the other day. We had to do liner notes for something. And she goes, I need three. I need your favorite three, Dex's favorite three. And I immediately sent her a text back saying that you're not being fair. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just not fair. Yeah. Because every time I, I mean, I hate to say, because other than Dock of the Bay, mm-hmm. Hard to Handle, the hits, I go deeper into the catalog, like mm-hmm. um, Open the Door. Uh, direct me some of the ones that people haven't heard that I, I know any day now someone will be covering these songs you know uh, they're just great songs that are not as well known as Respect in mm-hmm. Dock of the Bay but I, I'm tending to like Pain in My Heart and Open the Door mm-hmm. and Direct Me songs like that you know? let me get you guys thoughts on this because Hard to Handle and I remember when the Black Crows did that they did a remake did, did, they, did they have y'all blessing to do that of course. Okay. I mean, the Black Crows are a very well-established organization and group very well. You know, and they, they had a really good record deal. So people who have really good record deals do business the right way, you know. And that was important to you all as well. Of course, yeah. And, and, and I really respect all of these people who go back and give a new generation uh, a chance to, to know about the composers. Mm-hmm. Otis Redding wrote, you know, Hard to Handle. Uh, a lot of people had a lot of things to say about Michael Bolton doing Dock of the Bay. I, I think it really gave the, the catalog a, a breath of fresh air. And and the biggest thing people talk to me about now and ask me, why did y'all let Jay-Z and Kanye do Try a Little Tenderness? Well, you know, people say things, but they don't know how, how the music industry and the business works. But actually, them naming the song Otis mm-hmm. uh, sent a lot of 13 to 25-year-old kids to Google to find out who is this Otis, you know? Yeah. So thanks, you know, my hand, my hands, my hat's off to Jay-Z, Kanye, Black Crows. For doing you know, that. Michael keeping, Bolton, yeah, yeah. Keeping, help, help, to help keep the legacy alive, you know? You know, he was so young when he died. He was 26, and to have the catalog that he had at that age, and, and coming into the segment I talked about, in my opinion, how his voice just seemed so much older than what he actually was. What, what, did, what do you tell people yeah. about your father's style and your uncle's style? You know, the thing about it is when I look at his style and that growl mm-hmm. that I saw where someone did a, a Maserati uh, or Aston Martin commercial <laughs> abroad, and it was like the pipes of this car. It has the growl of Otis Redding. That growl that he had and that sensitivity at the same time was truly amazing, you know, and uh, just natural, just, um, and the character and the delivery. 
and he said and and to see him and look at him I've always like God you know like this older guy singing these songs but my father was so young mm -hmm. you know he was so young and I do listen to the songs that he did in the early days in like 58 and 59 and I can hear the youth I can hear where he sounded younger mm -hmm. I can actually hear the, the youth in his voice, but it still had the punch in the growl, you know? And are you, are either one of you ever compared to him? Do they say, hey, you know, can you do that growl? Can you hit that note like, like your father, like your uncle hit in that well, song? <laughs> <laughs> well, I get it all the time, but just a little bit. I, I mean, I get people when I travel abroad, soul music is so much more popular there still they'll say oh you sound so much like your father but I know what they mean they mm -hmm. just mean they hear similarities because yeah. I don't Mark has a true you know Mark is a true vocalist so you know whenever Mark wants to go there he can but Mark has always you know kept his own style Dexter when Dexter touches on the Otis song you can close your eyes in some places and you really feel Otis yeah. you know you really feel my dad he has it the most I yeah know. Dexter has yeah. it the most naturally, you know yeah. naturally Mark, just naturally, it's just there. Mark, let me ask you this, because Otis just touched on something talking about soul music. Do you all think, and Mark, I'll start with you, do you think soul has changed? We even had a conversation with Keith Sweat where we were talking about, has R&B, has soul, has it died? Because everyone is sort of, it's all hip-hop and pop, and you don't really hear the, the soul singers like Otis Redding, like we've heard, you know, just decades ago, and Sam Cooke Maybe. and Al Green. Yeah, well... Maybe just in radio play or something like that, but I think soul singers are still around. People still love soul music. I think uh, abroad is still very popular, and you hear it every day. I just think that maybe um, it just doesn't get the, the the love and attention from radio <laughs> as much. But yeah, I think what really happened is in the early 80s, I think, when people started saying R&B, a lot of mm -hmm. people didn't even really know what R&B meant. Was, they didn't yeah. know that it meant rhythm and blues. They right. just knew it was some term that uh, these a lot of people doing neo soul music mm -hmm. uh, just started calling. Oh, this we started calling neo soul. Because, yeah. yeah, because rap music had taken over so mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. If you started singing, they just considered it to be R&B, but they exactly. didn't even know what R&B meant. So it just right. took on a whole new meaning. Well, they were soul defined as soul. Even you know it used to be mm -hmm. soul and R and B. Yeah, you know defined as that. So um, I think that it's just a love for it, but I just don't think that they play it and but and respect it like wow. we yeah, want them. Yeah, that, I think it's just um, doesn't get the attention. Wow, but still the first music in my opinion. Well, I think a lot of people would agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. And here's the thing, Mark and Otis. Often he referred to Georgia in his music. How important was that for him? Uh, I think it was very important because he never forgot where he came from and he never would really truly leave for good. Uh, my father was born in Dawson, Georgia as mm -hmm. an infant, moved to Macon and uh, kept his roots there, you know, and um, his his parents instilled a lot of, you know, good morals in him and, you know, the whole Southern Georgia Southern, you know, respect thing was there, and, and he just kept that, and he lived it, and he never wanted to leave Georgia, you know, but uh, he sang about, left his home in Georgia, headed for the Frisco Bay, but he was always having intentions to come back home, you know. Gentlemen, as we wrap up, let me ask you this, and Otis, I'll start with you, and I imagine even when you're on stage, you're always thinking about your dad. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, and, 
you know, always thinking about my dad, but you know, a, a lot of times uh, I'm really, I'm thinking about my mom mm-hmm. just as much yeah. as my dad because, um, you know, it's it's um, it's it's a deep story. That's the story you want to, to hear and know about. I'm telling you, that that's the story. You know, and I mean, it's the Otis Redding story is in that, but mm-hmm. love the, story. the Zelma love story. story is, is yes. the one people are really yes. waiting for. You know, it really, really, yeah. really. Mark, what about you? What is what is your uncle meant to you? Oh, soul. Everything soul. Mm-hmm. When I think about it, you know, the question you asked about my favorite songs are the ones I think about. Every time I start singing Otis, it's always, I've been loving you too long. It's the first song I started to sing. And um, it's just the passion he had and everything. It was true that he was singing it about. Uh, you know, so I just... It's an overwhelming position to be in, and um, it's hard to answer a lot of these questions because sure. it's just it's just really something special that was that's upon our lives, and we just try to represent it with a lot of respect. And at the end of the day, we love our daddies, don't we? Oh yeah. Uh, All right, <laughs> you guys. <laughs> thank thanks you for so joining much. me. Thank we you. really appreciate it. Wow, I sound like I was 12 years old from 2016. My conversation with Otis Redding III and Mark Lockett who was the nephew of the great Otis Redding, part of the Reddings. His legacy and the music, of course, lives on. And in case you're just wondering, what is my favorite Otis Redding song? Well, it is this one. Baby, here I am, I'm a man on the scene. I can give you what you want, but you got to go home with me. I'm not going to sing, but that is it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Go on, Otis. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.